This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Absolutely thrilled to be joined on Football CFB by Gabriel Clark. Gabriel is a broadcaster and a reporter who I've admired for many years. You will recognise his tones from ITV growing up and with the terrestrial Champions League coverage. I've witnessed so many interviews that he's conducted with the likes of Josie Mourinho, Sir Alex Ferguson and others. And if you enjoy football films and sports documentaries, you'll know Gabriel from Bobby Robson, more than a manager the fantastic finding Jack Charlton and so many others that he helps and um, what well, he produces for the Noah Media Group. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, nice to talk to you, Cal. The, the first thing I want to talk to you about is the touchline reporting and being that reporter on a big occasion. How do you handle those types of interviews? I remember the, the famous Jose Mourinho interview where... Um, Real Madrid beat Manchester United. Lots of people expected him maybe to be the next Manchester United manager. And it's it's fair to say he left that possibility open at the time. How do you handle those occasions? Well, I think um, you handle them with uh, uh, experience. Experience, I think, is is the key to handling those situations best. Uh, you, le- you live and learn, I think, a lot by your experience when it comes to those flash interviews. ITV especially, and I've I've worked uh, uh, recently a little bit with uh, Amazon Prime or Prime Video, and um, it's been interesting to compare the two because on ITV, you have much less airtime to do those interviews uh, on on a sports subscription channel uh, or platform. You pretty much have carte blanche, and so you're, you're you're on air essentially until you decide to go off air. With ITV, of course, you have hard hours to hit, usually news at 10. And so there's there's only so much time. And, and of course, if a match runs over, then your time at the end of that match is, is even more limited. So those instances, we're still doing them around uh, England matches and we'll have the Euros this summer and then FA Cup per returns to ITV um, next season, which is which is great news. Uh, those interviews are always couched with a, a certain added pressure, I think. So it's it's knowing sometimes how to manoeuvre yourself, first of all, to make sure you get the interview, that somebody stands in front of your camera, because the, there isn't always that certainty, as I say, with the restricted running times. And then second of all, you don't have necessarily five minutes as you might have on a on a platform to get through the points you want. You have maybe a maximum of 90 seconds. So that in itself is an editorial challenge. Um, so I, I think that, that outlines the sort of essence of the challenge, especially when you're doing those post-match interviews for ITV. On the bigger occasions, Champions League finals, FA Cup finals, uh, you'll have more time. Big England internationals, you will have more time, uh, but, but often you don't. So you've got to be concise, you've got to know what you want, and you've got to be clear, clear thinking, and, and also, 
able to react to what, as ever in an interview, able to react to what the person in front of you is saying. You, you, you mentioned England and one of the, the first pieces of um, television that I was able to watch of yours was the journey to Euro 2004. And I remember it because at the time, England, of course, were travelling up and down the country um, to play games. You had trips to Macedonia, you had Beckham, obviously, in, in Turkey and so much drama that, that comes with the England national team. What's it like covering England? Because it's a, it's a massive talking point in, in, the, in the media, both front and back pages. And when England play, there is a real sense of importance. And on ITV, especially when you are the terrestrial broadcaster, you know that the audiences are huge as well. Absolutely. It's, it's a privilege uh, to cover England. It's a challenge, a big challenge as well, because uh, I think as, you, as you're sort of hinting at there, when you have so many people watching the programmes, especially throughout a tournament, and, and uh, there's always a story with England, one extreme or the other, and it pretty much begins as soon as the first match has ended, then, then you're on a roller coaster, really. And um, there has, there's been wonderful tournaments, well, especially the last one, 2018, was absolutely fabulous experience. And of course, the one just before that, the World Cup just before that, and the Euros just before that, were, were awful experiences. So you're on a, on, on a roller coaster. You are in the eye of the storm in many ways. But with that, I think, is, as I say, is it's, it's a, a journalistic challenge, sports journalistic challenge like no other. But um, it's one to relish. You find that your days are pretty much merging into one. You don't necessarily get that much sleep. You're, you're either traveling to a game, coming back from a game, or, or you're in the camp waiting to do an interview and uh, to, to find an angle with that interviewee. So it's a huge privilege. I, I relish that. And I'm, I'm still continuing on the, in the hope that, you know, the next one will be the, the one where they win it because I, I've seen Spain, um, I've seen uh, Germany, you know, you've be, I've been at tournaments where you, you've seen talented sides um, celebrating in the tunnel and, and you get a sense of just what it means to them as, as players, the ultimate, I think, to win with your nation. I really do believe that. So um, to be uh, uh, able to report on a tournament when England, if and when England are able to win, it would be a wonderful ambition to fulfill. You, you mentioned uh, the, the, the aspect of a story always being the case with England. And I want to talk to you about one player in particular because it's topical as we speak. Wayne Rooney has just retired from football and he's committed to being the Derby County manager full time. You were in and around the England camp as he was breaking into the first team, making his debut so young. You also covered the major tournaments that he went to and the, the, the strains that he had, both physical, obviously, with the injuries he had before some of those and the strains of pressure that come with playing at a major tournament for England. How do you reflect back on his career? Because being a big part of covering his international career and club career at Champions League level, it must have been a joy because he is one of the icons, I think, of English football over the last 20 years, for sure. Absolutely. And I, and I think um, when he retired recently, you, you certainly got a sense of that. You know, when he, when he said, right, this is it, I'm not, I'm not going to play again. Uh, it's almost hard to believe that this is the same guy who it feels just a blink of an eye ago was was turning and scoring that brilliant goal for Everton against Arsenal. And yeah, his career was incredible. The numbers, 
the, the record appearances uh, as an outfield player, the record number of goals uh, for, an, for England, the record number of goals for Manchester United. Um, his ability, I think, to always be committed when you talk to people close to him, to always be committed in every training session, uh, let alone every match. I think with England, there is a sense of regret, and I think he, he shares that sense of regret that we didn't see the best of him at major tournaments. The first one in 2004 was hugely memorable. It was massively exciting to see him come into that England team and perform the way he performed. It took England to a new level. England had a special dimension in that tournament in Portugal in 2004, and I think would have won that tournament, but for Rooney getting injured. I think that's how much he added to the, the, the team's aura at that point. And then afterwards, as you say, there was a, a, a sort of litany of injuries. And I think as well, uh, um, complications to do, I think with often at times, just the profile of the England team, which was a bit askew, especially during the Svenja and Ericsson time and, um, and the Capello age as well, when I don't think the players and the management uh, could quite get, get it right in terms of um, how they approach tournaments, you know, how they were able to sacrifice or not uh, to, the, to the greater good of the tournament. I mean, the golden generation players, uh, which Rooney was one, maybe a latecomer, have said that, that they're Liverpool, Manchester United, uh, Arsenal players never really gelled um, together in those England teams. And they regret that. And, and I think Wayne was obviously a victim of that as well. So I think his England career in terms of numbers is absolutely fantastic and he deserves the accolades. But of course, there was no trophy at the end of it. One of the experiences you've had in your career that I want to rewind back to is an iconic show. I mean, I, as I say, I'm 25, so I didn't get to watch it as it was out, but older relatives of mine have always talked about it and still do to this day. And that's Saint and Greavesy. You were a reporter on that show. What was it like working on that production? Because it's just seemed lighthearted and fun, just the way football should be. Yeah, I mean, I, I joined ITV in 1991, and uh, that was the last year. 1991 to 92 was the last year of Saint and Greavesy. Saint and Greavesy was was off the following summer, when the Premier League rights uh, were lost by ITV to Sky. So it was um, a wonderful experience for me, but but obviously a bit too short. Uh, I then moved on to other things with ITV, but. Uh, it's funny because I, I saw a post today on, on social media, um, appropriately, Callum. Um, somebody posted me a link saying, do you remember this interview? And it's Jim Leishman, uh, famous Scottish manager slash poet, um, doing a, what you might call a cheeky bit of poetry uh, queued up by me uh, up at Montrose when he was manager in that season. And, and Jim was one of St. Greaves's favourites. And Satan Greaves, he always liked to go to Scotland. Of course, you know what they would say about Scottish goalkeepers. It became a bit of a gag for Greavesy about Scottish goalkeepers. But the Scottish fans uh, always, I think, essentially took that as it should have been taken with a tongue in cheek. And, and you had figures like Jim Leishman. Uh, I remember going to do a piece at Cowdenbeath that season because we were always looking for Scottish stories, I think, because 
everybody was so warm towards St. Ingrisi, uh, uh, especially in Scotland. And um, I went up to Cowden Beef and did a piece with the chairman, who was also the owner of the club, who also did stock car meetings the night of the game. So they'd play the game, he'd be the chairman of the club, and then the, the night, that night at the ground, they'd turn the ground into a stock car racing circuit, and you'd have stock car racing. So that, that's another one of my sort of Scottish memories related to the way in which we covered football on, on St. Greavesy, which as you say, was, was different. I think in a way, you know, it, it sort of went out of fashion, St. Greavesy. It was overtaken and was starting to be overtaken, I think, by uh, a more earnest way of covering football. Stats-based, slicker, more modern in terms of uh, um, the way in which you wouldn't make jokes about the game. You know, you, you, you wouldn't get into stereotypes and some of the stereotypes on St. Greavesy you wouldn't allow on screen today. But I think there's a fondness still for the, the heart of the game of which it was trying to capture. And I think probably some of that, you know, you've, see, you've seen in shows since now and you've seen filtering back into shows and people do want to laugh with, a laugh with their football and maybe now more than ever. You talked about your fond memories of working in Scotland and when I recently spoke to your colleague, Mark Pugac, he, he talked about his... His joy that Scotland and Wales are back at a major tournament this summer alongside England because he loves it when the home nations are involved in major tournaments because it brings more to the parties, Mark put it. Is that how you feel as well? Oh, totally. I covered two, I covered um, the Euro 96 as Scotland reporter. So Scotland, STV, still had their own Scotland reporter. Uh, it was Jim White, I think. And then in 1998, I was ITV's reporter with the Scotland team in France. So I got to know that, that, that Scottish team. It was one of my, that was my, only my second World Cup. So I got to know that Scotland team and Craig Brown and, and the guys there really well, John Collins, um, Gary McAllister, Ali McCoist, a lot of those guys really well and they're, they're wonderful people and they had a very talented team. And, you know, I think in, in both tournaments, they. You know, they went to the third match and I think in both tournaments, they'll feel like they, you know, they should have gone through. They, they missed out for different reasons. Some of them self-inflicted and some of them, well, England, uh, England did them no favours, did they? And uh, tempted them in Euro 96 and then let them down with that uh, game against Holland. But absolutely, Scotland offers so much. It adds to the experience and uh, what an occasion it's going to be in um, ITV have the game, England versus Scotland this summer all being well uh, and 25 years after that incredible Gaza moment, that, that game at Wembley, uh, Scotland are back and the game is back and let's, let's hope that the, the Scotland fans are there to enjoy it and add what they, they do add, which is something special. And um, it's absolutely brilliant that, that uh, Scotland and Wales, as you say, are involved. To talk about your production um, in, in regards to the films that you've produced, the, the, the talk of international tournaments brings me on to finding Jack Charlton and, and Bobby Robson more than a manager because those films encapsulate what international tournaments mean to a nation. And in Jack Charlton's case, of course, with Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland and how he galvanised that country and, and really became the, the lovable Englishman in a time, as, as you've put in the film, that 
that was a difficult situation at the time. And, and, and obviously, Sir Bobby Robson, I mean, what he was able to achieve in, in 1990, Gaza's Tears, The Night in Turin. When you approach a film about the likes of a Sir Bobby Robson, a Jack Charlton, a Brian Clough, is, is there a set way you approach it? Because from, from the viewer's perspective, in relation to those three films, they, they have a nice, warm and homely feel but also the tough situations that these people face are covered and they are covered with respect as well as being brutally honest about the situations as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I think in a way what, you, what you've said there in terms of the toughness and the brutal honesty is because I, I am, a, I, I mean, I began as a journalist, you know, a news journalist. So I think um, uh, I wasn't a ruthless news journalist. <laughs> But um, the, the essence of trying to be authentic, I think, is, is something I've got within me and something I always want to be. You know, you want, you want your work to be authentic and to be true. And I think to find something out, I think that's, that as, a, as a journalist, that's your role. And uh, doing the, the documentaries, I think, has enabled me to expand that, uh, um, that, uh, thing that I like to do. So, you know, you, you have a longer format, you're able to find stories. Um, Bobby Robson, Brian Clough, Jack Charlton had all had films made about them before I did. I made films about them, but I, the idea was that when I began the project, that you're finding something new, you're telling an aspect of their story that hasn't been told before, or you're doing it with people who haven't spoken before. For instance, Brian Clough's wife, uh, Nigel Clough, um, you're finding archive that has never been seen before, as was the case in, in finding Jack Charlton with the archive that we discovered of the, the team from 1990 that had never been seen. And you're, you're filming in situations that no one has ever done before, Jack with, living with dementia. Um, with Bobby Robson, you're, you're getting to the heart of who the man was by, for the first time, really getting to the heart of his story about living with the cancer and also explaining um, how he had this amazing season in Barcelona with the, this incredible array of footballing figures, Mourinho, Ronaldo, Figo, Stoichkov, um, that, that had never been, who never really talked about that season before. So I think um, it's coming to the stories with that sense of trying and wanting to say, to say something new, knowing that you've got a body of archive that you can go to that, will surprise people and delight people, hopefully. And, and then knowing as well that you've got the trust of people who respect your filmmaking, who will say, okay, yeah, I'd like to be in that film because I, I believe it's gonna be as definitive as it can be. So I think you've got to set yourself high targets, but um, because you need to do those figures justice. And you also need to tell the viewer something different about those stories and take them maybe to an emotional place they've not gone before. But that, those are the challenges I think you've got to set yourself as a documentary maker. Otherwise people, you know, there's a lot of content out there at the moment and more and more. Otherwise people after 10 minutes will, will flick over to Netflix. You talked about the emotive nature of documentary making and, and in regards to finding Jack Charlton, um, one of the, the key figures in, in the film I have to talk to you about is Paul McGrath. Now, 
Paul is is a footballer who fascinates so many. He was an icon for that Irish national team, and, and to this day, people are still fascinated by him as a character because he's had his troubles personally on and off the park, and he's a character that that people, let's be honest, very rarely get to hear from in an extended piece. But I thought in the film, the way he spoke was emotive. He talked about Jack being a father figure to him, and you could really see the emotion coming from Paul, which led led to myself and many others who've watched the film um, feeling and, and, and being emotional while watching it. How proud are you of Paul's contribution to that film and, and how you were able to get Paul to open up about such a key moment in his life? Well, that's nice of you to say that. And I think um, it's, it's important that... Um... It was crucial to us that Paul was in that film. And, and as you say, he, he doesn't talk at length and hasn't really talked at length, I don't think, too much about the, the relationship he had with Jack. And, and, and then, of course, you, you're stepping into his own issues with alcohol and, and his, also his background. You know, I think one, one of the reasons why um, Paul's such a significant figure in that, in that island team uh, was the fact that he was black and he was from a very complicated background and uh, lived at a time in Ireland when, you know, it was very, very difficult to be who he was. And so it wasn't necessarily just his relationship with Jack. It was what, it was what Paul had to live through before that, that defined him and made it very difficult for him. And um, so that played into this bigger picture of what Ireland was at the time Jack took over the way in which the country was wanting to evolve and the way in which its football team helped it evolve. Uh, and of course, you had maybe Paul's own development, uh, thanks to Jack, of it being a symbol of that. Uh, but, but certainly Paul um, was wonderfully honest in it, incredibly honest at times. And um, that's down to him. That's not necessarily down too much to me and, and, and asking him the questions. I think that's just down to us steering him in the right, the right way and, and getting his trust so that he felt when he could, he could do the interview and he could do it in a way that was, again, again authentic. And um, I think it's, it's certainly resonated with a lot of people, that, that story in the film. And from the start, as I say, it was, it was a key target for us to get that. And I'm really pleased that we did because it, a bit like the, the, the sort of sub, sub chapters with, with Bobby Charlton, with the dementia, um, you, you've got storylines there that interweave with the bigger picture of Jack and Ireland. And I think hopefully that's what means the film is, is really landing with people. You talk about the, the dementia and it's such a, a delicate subject. I was fortunate enough to speak to Chris Sutton um, towards the end of 2020 and he was very, very powerful about his now late father and his battle with dementia. And it, it really is something that, that has to be addressed within football and, and, and all sports. And the unique element of the film is the fact that Jack is filmed in those moments and that's something that, you don't normally see before and the reason I use the word delicate is, is as you know it's a, a situation that that has never really been been put on air before of such a high profile figure but again I thought it was handled very well you had the the medical expertise 
uh, within the film when it was necessary um, to explain uh, certain scenarios that as a viewer, obviously, it's helpful to, to fully understand. How did how did you approach that as a filmmaker? Because as I say, it's something that hasn't really been done before, especially with someone so high profile in such a delicate situation. Well, we um, we met up with Jack's uh, son John, and also with Jack, uh, we being uh, myself and Andy Townsend, who was the executive producer of the film. And Andy came on board. I've known Andy from ITV and. Uh, I talked to him a little bit about the idea of making a film about Jack based on this idea of uh, Jack's wider achievement, uh, an Englishman going to Ireland at that time and then 10 years later leaving with, with Ireland very much a changed nation and, uh, and an Englishman being this honorary Irish figure is at the centre of it. And so Andy rang up uh, John Charlton and uh, within a week we were up in the northeast, um, not far from where Jack lives. And Jack came along to the pub that John owns and we, we had a chat and it was, it was clear at that stage that in that meeting in 2018, October 2018, that Jack um, wouldn't be able to do his own interview, but that, that physically he was, he was still in reasonably, reasonably good health. And, and so obviously at that point, we knew that we had modern scenes potentially that, as you say, hadn't really been captured before of a, a footballer of that generation living with the condition. And we just followed the, the, the guide of the family, John Charlton and Pat Charlton, his wife, Jack's wife. So, so Pat was there whenever we were filming with Jack. And they are delicate scenes to do, but, but equally the sense that we got to was that, you know, Jack would regularly look at the camera, engage with the camera, one of the first moments that I was keen to put in the film is of Jack actually directly addressing the camera um, in, his, in his home, because he was always aware of the camera, Jack, and he was so good on camera. And he was aware, as far as I was concerned, quite regularly when we were filming with him, uh, right up until the end, uh, that there was a camera there, because that was, that was Jack. And, and it also, I think, underlines this idea that as hard as it is to watch somebody and maybe engage with somebody who has dementia, they are still able to live and, and live often um, still to a satisfying extent. And that, that's something that Pat and John Charlton wanted the film to capture was that um, Jack was, you know, not, Jack was living with this condition. It's something the Alzheimer's society were always keen to emphasize. You know, people who have that condition can still can still try and live profitable lives. So we, we filmed Jack fishing, we filmed Jack uh, with his grandkids, we filmed Jack at the beach with his wife, we filmed him at his charity. And um, yeah, of course, often he's not able to communicate, but he is there and he's still living his life. And I think hopefully there's a, an inspirational sense that you take from that, which isn't to take away the bigger picture, of course, which is this condition its potential link, of course, to football and the wider, the wider picture. Uh, and, and we were the first, the film was uh, the first to officially get the confirmation that Sir Bobby Charlton was living with dementia. We, you know, we had to ask his wife, Lady Norma Charlton, whether he could be in the film to talk about his brother. And we were told sadly no, because, and she confirmed it for the first time officially, the news that Sir Bobby has that condition. So, um, 
there were many different things happening at the same time whilst we were making the film, but it was absolutely imperative, as you say, that we did it in a way that um, uh, captured the essence of Jack uh, right up until the end, the true essence of Jack, uh, and did it in a way that made you, I feel, uh, respect him even more. Well, as I say, from my point of view as a viewer, it's it's incredibly powerful and emotive, and I would encourage anyone listening who hasn't watched it, um, finding Jack Charlton, go and buy it and, and watch it, because you really will enjoy it for the football, for the stories, for the journey, and as you've said, for the, the honesty and, and the way that the big topics are, are faced with respect and, and in a way that educates you as a viewer. Another aspect of, of your work, which is different to the, the, the films with on Clough and Bobby Robson and, and Jack, was, was Keane versus Vieira. Um, we talked about it off air. It's a, it's a really interesting idea to put two of those really massive icons of Manchester United and Arsenal who were going head to head quite literally in the early 2000s together. What was it like working in that project? Because it was very good. And what I enjoyed about it is, even at the age they're at now, they're still two highly competitive guys who have grown to respect each other 110% for the, the battles that they had. That must have been a really fun and engaging project. It was absolutely great to do, yeah. I mean, it was all done in one day, essentially. You know, it wasn't, uh, wasn't a documentary that you do over years. It was all filmed in one day, obviously, but the edit itself was, was pretty quick too because it was made for television, for ITV, and um, it was produced by a former ITV colleague of mine, Tony Pasta, who, who'd got to know uh, the guys pretty well from his time editing the programmes that we did, the Champions League programmes. So I think Roy started doing ITV work. Champions League final was his first game for ITV, Roy. Uh, Barcelona, Manchester United at Wembley, 2011. And then he, he obviously has stayed with the, with the team ever since. And um, Patrick Vieira started doing a, a couple of Champions League games for us when he went into um, coaching with Man City. And, and they met at Villarreal on the touchline. I think it was the first direct meeting they'd had since they'd both retired. And it was at that point, I think, where we weren't quite sure how they'd react, but, but they sort of got on. And... Um, it was at that point, I think, that Tony had the idea, well, let's, let's get these two at some point talking about their rivalry because their rivalry, as you say, defined, uh, defined uh, Arsenal, Manchester United and an era in the Premier League like no other. And uh, after, a, uh, yeah, after a few phone calls, the idea was, was there. Listen, guys, it won't take you too long to do. You're both in Manchester. One at City, obviously Roy's, Roy's still up there, and um, we'll get you, um, we'll get you along to a warehouse. We've got this idea that we'll do it in a sort of uh, heat film concept across a table, and we'll also get you talking about your uh, your own careers and reflecting uh, on some of the headlines and the great players that you played with. So it was a it was a really good concept. Both of the guys bought into it in theory. The practice of it was the key. So it's getting it all done between the hours, of, I think it was like 11 in the morning and five in the evening. Bearing in mind, you need to do set up interviews with both of them that have to be good. I didn't want to interview one while the other was there. I didn't want one listening to the other's interview. You never want that because you, you know it, it can compromise how much they might say. So we had to almost schedule when they were there 
hope that they, unlike a lot of footballers, were um, nice and punctual, which they were. And then, of course, the key thing is in those, those scenes that we have them opposite each other, we need to make sure that we've got particular games to talk about and that they're going to lead each other without me being there, to, you know, in the set, without anyone being there to chair it. They've got to lead it and to be good enough to carry it off. And they were, you know, and, and they talked in a way that was natural, but it was also combative. And they talked in a way I think that maybe they didn't think they would, but they respected each other on the pitch. And now they were respecting each other off the pitch. And I, and I think there was something almost um, cathartic in it for them. And um, it was an absolutely incredible shoot to do in the sense that you had to get it all done against strict deadlines. You had to really hope and pray that they'd be able to perform and carry it off, you know, that you wouldn't get sort of chats that were just a bit flat and a bit, you know, lacking in rivalry. And um, so it was a risky shoot, but I think the ambition, ambition is, you know, is at the heart of uh, often the best work. And, and you know, that, that program has certainly st stood the test of time, I think, with a lot of people who, who tell me they still go back to it. The, the last thing I want to talk to you about, Gabriel, before I let you go in, in advance, thank you for being so generous with your time, is, is the European Championships that are, are upon us this summer. Your former ITV colleague, Gareth Southgate, of course, now leads the England team. The, the run to the semi-finals in 2018 was, even as a Scotsman, I have to be honest with you, it was, a, it was an incredible journey to watch. You could see the scenes in England that the broadcasters were showing us on the park, the team were united, and and you think of how close that semi-final with Croatia was. What are your hopes and expectations for England this summer? Is it imperative that the games can go ahead at Wembley with some form of crowd because that will help England? Or in a sense, if it was sadly to be moved elsewhere and played behind closed doors, could that also help England because you don't have that maybe usual weight of expectation? I think... Uh, Gareth Southgate and the players would want the former. They definitely want um, that normality, that that sense of uh, there being fans in the stadium. Uh, I think it, you know, especially after the the year that we've had, everybody's had. Uh, if if it was to be the sort of start of something, that European Championship, uh, of the start of crowds returning, uh, the moment when. Uh, if you, if you like, um, normality is awakened, that would be stunning. And I think it would give England a, a massive lift and potentially, uh, as you're suggesting, maybe a decisive lift. For that to be the case, I, I think, yeah, it would bring with it a level of pressure. But um, I think the adrenaline rush would, would be immense for that England team if, they're, they're, if those games, are, as you say, to go ahead at Wembley and um, in, in front of fans, even if it was a half full Wembley, um, with, with them being essentially England fans, then it, I think it would be a massive um, advantage for England. If, if there are no fans, um, then I, I think, um, it, uh, I don't know, then I think, yeah, there might be a, a certain degree of there being less pressure to a point on England, but um, I mean, I've noticed it covering the games. I've done some games uh, this winter uh, with Amazon and I, and I think it's 
I've got a huge admiration for the players and the managers. Listen, I know they're getting paid big money and they're, they're carrying on, but uh, the lack of atmosphere and playing in front of no crowds week in, week out and a hectic schedule, uh, a schedule that demands you play every three or four days, perhaps even more than that, I think is, you know, does sap the spirit a bit and it is very difficult. Um, so let, let's hope that England uh, are able and Scotland and Wales to, to play in front of crowds at the European Championship. I think England have a really good chance based on the experience that they picked up in 2018. Uh, Gareth Southgate, I know, will be using every day uh, at his disposal to think about tactics, to look at the best way ahead, to analyse opponents and to get a sense of, you know, to make sure that his team is as best prepared as they can possibly be. And that, that's, that's mentally as well. I think he's been very good on that side of things. I think you know, when you talk about the sort of pressure from a home base, playing in front of your own fans, I think he was very good at getting English players to embrace the idea of tournament football in Russia and to enjoy the experience, which so many teams really failed to do, his teams which he was a part of. Um, so I think um, I'm confident that when it gets to the tournament, let's hope it does, that England will have a good mindset for that tournament. He needs his key players to be fit between now and the end of the season. There's always a question mark about that. And, um, and then they need a bit of good fortune, uh, which they did have in the last tour tournament in terms of uh, the teams they drew and the way the knockout phase worked out. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to that game, as I say, against Scotland. I think it'll be fantastic. And um, let's hope that that tournament represents for all of us uh, uh, maybe the a sense of things getting back to normal. Fingers crossed. And I just want to say thank you very much for your time. And I wish you and England all the best. That Scotland game aside, of course, um, for, for the future. Thank you so much. I wish you and Scotland all the best, Callum, too. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they